Hi there, everybody. Good afternoon. Welcome on this. Gosh, it's like it's the end of July out I there know, today. It's, May, crazy. it's a hot Monday. Hot, windy Monday. Yeah, very windy. Very windy. Yep. Quite warm, unusual, quite humid. Yeah, I was, I'm really glad we went to see the ABBA the concert Friday night and the humidity was low. We that made all the so difference. so fortunate. It was down at a net, net square, net Strauss Square. It was outside. It was fun. It was perfect. They, the, the band did a great job, you know, covering, I guess, yes. ABBA is what it was. It was pretty much ABBA reborn, except yes. not the same people. And it was fun. It was good. The weather was great. It was one of those things that was a, <laughs> a, like a stocking stuffer Christmas present for me in 2019. Tickets to see the show because Scott knew how much I love ABBA. And then, of course, in May of 2020, it was canceled. It was rescheduled for 21 and then 22. And so we're glad they were able to all do it because the whole group, actually, that performed really were from Sweden. And they're like, yeah, the that was kind of funny. ABBA I didn't expect group. that, that they were yeah. actually a Swedish group. But it was all good. It was all fun. I hope everybody, all the moms and um, friends of moms, husbands of moms, all had a good day yesterday. We had a really good day, and um, just everything was really nice. And I learned definitively now that the name of the group, Abba, has nothing to do with the Arabic, Aramaic word Abba, which means Papa, no. that you find in the New Testament. It's just simply in a sort of an acronym of some names of their of names the, the two the girls people. singers uh, the, the two a's and then the two b's and yeah. the so are what bjorn and but Benny. there's a whole other meaning to it yes <laughs> wow okay so so that's up what else dear anything else new i don't think so well, i finished up my coffee here i don't think so it's all good uh, <sighs> bob says baba is his all-time favorite group you know, Bob, I think it's ours, too. We had a big surprise party, well, sort of, for Scott's 50th birthday, and the DJ just kept getting asked to play one ABBA song after another. It kind of took over the whole And even event. Friday night, we were dancing. We were, right. Out there, out there in the we lawn. Were. We had lawn seats out yes, there in the lawn. Yeah. We were... We were those old people Everybody dancing. there was... There was either, I told Scott there were two groups of people there. Older people who remember ABBA from when they were young... And then the kids who had to grow up listening to ABBA because of their From parents. their grandparents, probably. <laughs> <laughs> okay, well, we're at, we're, we're at a big, uh, big important moment in the right. book of Isaiah today. So I guess we're going to get started. What do you think? I think that sounds okay, great. Okay, let's pray. Gracious Lord, we are grateful to be gathered here on this Monday. And um, we are on this journey through the scroll of Isaiah and it presents a lot of challenges and it presents so much that is wonderful and we just just pray that you will help us to really engage and to embrace and to listen and to learn as, as we as as we get closer and closer and closer to all the sections that are tied um, to the coming of the Messiah to the coming of Jesus all this we pray in his name amen amen all righty, I'm going to okay. scoot on over. Very Can you good. Have another cup of coffee there, bud? Oh, no. All I'm right. done. I've got coffee breath, but you're a whole couple of desks away, so I think you'll be okay. <laughs> <laughs> you know how that goes. Yep. Okay, so we are, um, it, we are today beginning Isaiah 40, verse 1. There's a big, really there's a big break between chapter 39 and the beginning of chapter 40. Chapters 
1 through 39 in Isaiah come from the time of Isaiah, about 700 years before Jesus, um, and concludes with the repelling of um, the invasion by Sennacherib, the Assyrian ruler. And we talked about that last week. And then we talked about Hezekiah's illness last week as well. And we talked last week about the fact that also in chapter 39, there are these hints about what is coming in terms of Babylon. But chapters 1 through 39 are, are from about 700 years before Jesus, um, written by Isaiah, maybe some of his students, editors, whatever. It's the scroll of Isaiah. And um, then, beginning in chapter 40, we come to a later section written during the Babylonian exile. So it's probably written as much as 150 years after chapters 1 to 39. And it's written from, from, from during the darkest time um, in the history of Israel. And so we're going to need today to really appreciate Isaiah 40 and appreciate some of the budding connections to the New Testament, we're going to need to just cover a little bit of the story here. So just some of you may know this, but I just feel like we probably all don't. And it would it's a good it's a good review of us who who are feel like we know our, our way around this pretty well. So here's the deal. Nebuchadnezzar was the Babylonian ruler at the end of the 7th century BC. Let me make this simpler. He was the, he was the Babylonian, Babylonian ruler around 600 BC. And his predecessors had supplanted the Assyrians. And the map you're looking at now is the map in the green of the Babylonian Empire. And you notice that there is no little splotch of orange anymore. Remember, the, there was a little splotch of orange in the Assyrian Empire because they never took Jerusalem and the immediate area, really, honestly, just Jerusalem. And, and now that little orange splotch is gone because the Babylonians do. They do it over a period of maybe 20 years or so. They arrive... Um, it's clear they could just roll over the whole kingdom and so... The, the, the kingdom of Judah becomes um, what's called a vassal state, a client state. Um, but the Jews weren't happy with that, and a, and, and a king led them in some rebellion, trying to do a little bit of uprising against Nebuchadnezzar. And he came back and put the hammer down, laid siege, and in the winter of 587, 586 B.C., he... Um, conquered the city and when he did so um, he took he sent tens of thousands of Jews in exile he destroyed the city walls and he destroyed the temple and surely just made off with the Ark of the Covenant and the temple treasury and so forth there's really nothing left in Jerusalem except poor people a burned out city just just horror, really. And um, the leading Jews, large numbers of Jews, 
are marched off into exile. They're marched off northeastward and then southeastward from Jerusalem to, to Babylon. And um, it's a dark time. There's just, it, it's hard to convey how dark a time this is. These, these are God's people, and they knew they had been faithless, but still, but still, um, with the destruction of the temple, and the destruction of the city, and the loss of the walls, and the loss of the Ark of the Covenant, it seems that all is lost, that God has now abandoned them. Um, they understood that this was a result of their own choices. They had chosen to be faithless, had been doing so for a very, very long time, many, many, many generations. Despite a few bright spots, it's largely a tragic story in the Old Testament that the people will not live as they should, will not worship God as they should, and they're constant embracing and re-embracing of pagan gods and goddesses. And so a way to understand what's happening it, when they march off into exile is that they are basically going to jail. And it will be a jail of an indeterminate lifetime sentence. No expectation of, of coming home. I mean, it's a long way. Look again at the map. I mean, you know, that's a long way to go all the way from Jerusalem up to the Mesopotamian River Valley, southward down to Babylon. Um, exiles had begun coming there for 20 years because um, even, even 20 years ago, there were Jews who were sort of turned over to the Babylonians in order to try to keep the peace and keeping, trying to keep Nebuchadnezzar out of the city. That's who Daniel is. Daniel had gone to Babylon like 20 years before. Um, but now the city has fallen, uh, the walls are gone, the temple is gone. You might ask yourself, well, wait, 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 Scott. Now, come on. God himself dwells in that temple. His presence is in that temple. How could the temple be destroyed? And in Ezekiel 10, we have a passage where Ezekiel's given a vision of the Spirit of God rising up out of the temple and heading eastward. So the temple is essentially unoccupied by God and um, it's destroyed by the Babylonians. And it's just it's just the death of Jerusalem, the death of, it's, it's a hard thing to imagine, I think, for Americans. You know, things like that are being played out or being threatened to play out in, in Ukraine and stuff today. But for us, us who grow up in a relatively peaceful America, or at least the troubles have, have difficulty reaching across the oceans, it's just, it's just hard, to, hard to contemplate, really. So let me go back to my slides. This is a painting by James Tussaud called By the Waters of Babylon. And there is a psalm. So these are these are Jew This is a, his imagining of Jewish exiles lying along the riverbank um, of the river, the Tigris Euphrates rivers, in in Babylon. And there's a psalm 
that we're going to read right now, Psalm 137, that expresses how, dis how utterly, utterly disconsolate these people are. Because unless you get the darkness, you won't get the brightness. It's like going to the movie theater in Dallas on a hot summer day in the afternoon. When you go to the movie theater, your eyes get completely adjusted to the dark. You pop out, open that northern door at Cinemark at Parker, and boom. You can't even see where you're going. The light is so bright. It's that contrast that I think really opens up our hearts and opens up this, the big, this chapter 40 and will help us make the connections to Jesus. So, why don't you take a moment and find your way to Psalm 137, as I will. Um, Psalm 1, <laughs> 137. Boy, a lot of Psalms there to choose from you on this really little iPad app. There. Okay. You know, this is a Psalm that people are so surprised is in the Bible. And it illustrates that everything in the Bible is certainly not something we, we should do. Everything in the Bible is not virtuous. A lot of the best, most well-known characters in the Bible are really not people you'd necessarily want to emulate very much, or at least many of their actions aren't actions you'd want to emulate very much, right? It's just, it's just a lot of truth in Scripture. There's a lot of truth about who people are and, and stuff. So, But this psalm uh, is about having been exiled to Babylon and their their deep grief and sadness. So Psalm 137, verse 1. Let's just read it. By the rivers of Babylon we sat and wept when we remembered Zion slash Jerusalem. Kind of synonyms, okay? There on the poplars we hung our harps. And you can, if you look in the upper left corner of the painting, which I'm leaving up for this, you can see how the artist put a little harp hanging there on the tree. There on the poplars we hung our hearts, for there our captors asked us for songs. Or tormentors demanded songs of joy, they said, Sing us one of the songs of Zion. How can we sing the songs of Yahweh while in a foreign land? Oh, if I forget you, Jerusalem, may my right hand forget its skill. May my tongue cling to the roof of my mouth if I do not remember you, if I not, do not consider Jerusalem my highest joy. And you see, Jerusalem is lost to them now. None of those people have any expectation of going back. All they have is the memory. All they have is the memory. Verse 7. Remember, Yahweh, what the Edomites did on the day Jerusalem fell. Tear it down, they cried. Tear it down to its foundations. Daughter Babylon, doomed to destruction. Doomed to destruction. Because Babylon is ungodly. Put it that way. Daughter Babylon, doomed to destruction. Happy is the one who repays you according to what you have done to us. That's a desire for revenge. Happy is the one who seizes your infants and dashes them against the rocks. 
for surely many children and infants were killed in the um, siege and destruction of Jerusalem. And it's, it's just a desire for vengeance, which God has asked us to give up, but, you know, it's, it's, it's true. Their feelings are true. And, and that is, it's just, it's just dark, dark, dark. That's how it is. Um, Scott, could I ask a question? Sure, please do. Um, my question is, I know that everybody, they had no choice. They had to pretty much walk, right? Yeah. Uh, to Babylon. So in this photo, they show people, yes, uh, very sad and disheartened laying down by the water, but... Were they slaves? Were they captives? Were they able to work on their own? Or what, what did most of the people, what did most of these exiles have to do when they got to Babylon? Stay there and work for the good of the Babylonian Empire. And, and um, the Babylonians would have put them to work um, on various projects, one kind or another. I guess you could say that, that yes, they were, they were slaves and that they weren't going to go home and they weren't Ba they weren't Babylonian. The, the great temptation offered to them is a temptation to basically become Babylonian. That's what the book of Daniel is about. That when he goes to Babylon, what he is asked to do by the Babylonians is to become Babylonian. To eat their food, to worship their gods, to take on Babylonian names, and, um, and to... And, and he doesn't. And so he and his friends, they get, right? They get, his friends get tossed in a fiery furnace. He gets tossed in a lion's den. Um, God confronts uh, the, the Babylonian rulers. So that is, that, that's, the, that's the, the temptation. And there are Jews who never, even though you and I both know the Jews returned, okay? Many Jews never did. Many Jews just stayed. The book of the book of Esther is set in the community of Jews in Persia, which is just to the east of Babylon. So it's set in a community of Jews who did not return. Um, some Jews returned. Um, the Jews who went into exile generally did not. If you were maybe if you as there was somebody young enough. They could be an old person by the time that they are allowed to return because it's about 50 years or so. They would be, and, and they might be able to return to a Jerusalem that they perhaps remember. But it's a very difficult journey, very difficult journey. So, thank you. Anyway, sure. Now, I just said that, of course, we know that people did return. And um, one place in the Bible where you find promise a promise made to these people is from the prophet Jeremiah. So right now, since we're at the right place, let's just look at um, Jeremiah chapter 29. You can just find verse 1. That will do as they say. 
So a good part of Jeremiah 21 is devoted to a letter that Jeremiah sends, <laughs> what? Sends on behalf of God, really, to the exiles in Babylon. And, and the text of it begins in verse 4. So I think we'll just start there, okay, with this. This goes from Jeremiah, who is in Jerusalem, to the exiles in Babylon. How it got there, I guess it got there, I don't know. But it carries God's perspective on the lives they should lead, particularly speak, speaking to um, Patty's question. Verse 4. This is what Yahweh Almighty, the God of Israel, says to all those I carried into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. Now, you may say, well, that's funny that it says I carried. It's the Babylonians. But you see, for these people, the Babylonians are no more than God's instrument. These people are reaping, the Jews are reaping the consequences of their own faithlessness. And this is God's punishment. And so it, 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 in the largest sense, God is sovereign completely. In the largest sense, God has carried them from exile from Jerusalem to Babylon because they are reaping the consequences of their own sin, their own faithlessness toward God. Remember, um, there's this, this wonderful little image from Terence Fretheim about there's a, there, there, there's a fabric of moral causation in God's creation. And it's, it's not perfectly finely woven like silk. It's kind of like burlap, and it can sometimes be hard to exactly see. But it's very likely that if you are faithless to God, that's going to come back on you. Like in Ezekiel, when, when God says, you know, I will turn... I will turn their sins back on them. It's that it's that idea that when you when you choose to be faithless to God, there are likely to be bad consequences of that. It's not always direct, it's not always immediate, but that is that's how the universe is constructed. The universe is constructed morally so that we so if we want to lead the lives of peace and contentment and joy and fulfillment and prosperity, that we should, we should seek, we we should seek the virtues. We should be loving and kind and caring and compassionate and the rest. And when we're not, we suffer the consequence. That's the whole book of Proverbs. Okay. So here's the letter. This okay. Now verse five. Build houses. Settle down, plant gardens, eat what they produce. Marry, have sons and daughters, find wives for your sons, give your daughters in marriage so that they too may have sons and daughters. Increase in number there. Do not decrease. As in, begin putting your lives back together. Build normal lives. Do the things that you would do if you were in Israel. Grow your families. Grow your community Build your homes, build your lives. Verse 7 might surprise you. Also, I'm so sorry. We're in Jeremiah, what chapter? 29. 29. I'm sorry, I thought you said 21. 
I'm and sorry. I was not there. So other people probably heard 29. I don't know. I 29. Not. Okay. I'll wait. 29. Yeah, I'm there. Thank you. Oh, See? there's Lindo. Yeah. Gosh, maybe I said you, 21. I, I don't know. you did. Okay, um, big okay. mistake. <laughs> Jeremiah 29, and we'll start over. <laughs> oh, man. <sighs> Jeremiah 29, verse 4. Jeremiah, chapter 29, verse 4. That's the beginning of the letter from Jeremiah to the exiles. <laughs> <laughs> okay. I'm glad it was. 29, verse 4. Maybe you type it in there, Patty. <laughs> I would type it, but I'm going to get confused. Okay. So look at... So it's... So, look at verse 5. Build houses and settle down. Plant gardens and eat what they produce. Marry, have sons and daughters. Find wives for your sons. Give your daughters in marriage so that they too may have sons and daughters. Increase in number there. Do not decrease. Normal lives. Do the stuff that you would do if you were living in Israel. But look at verse 7. Also... Seek the peace and prosperity of the city to which I have carried you into exile. So they're supposed to work for the good of the Babylonians, which tells you what? Their stay in Babylon, if it's not forever, it's going to be a long one. Pray to Yahweh for it, the peace and prosperity in Babylon, because if Babylon prospers, if it prospers, you too will prosper. You know, that's pretty much common sense, isn't it? They're there, and they're going to be there. And they're going to have a choice about the kind of life they are going to lead. And they could spend their whole life undermining themselves and their community, and, and God's instructor them is no, no. Build your lives, build your families, build your communities, build your homes, work, and pray for the prosperity of the community that you, the larger city that you're living in. Because if it goes well for them, it's going to go well for you. Verse eight. Yes, this is what Yahweh Almighty, the God of Israel, says: Do not let the prophets and diviners among you deceive you. Don't listen to the dreams you encourage them to have. They are prophesying lies to you in my name. That's a constant Old Testament refrain to be careful, careful of false prophets. And I think it's as true in 2022 as it was in the 6th century B.C. I have not sent them, declares Yahweh. Verse 10. This is what Yahweh says. When 70 years are completed for Babylon, I will come to you and fulfill my good promise to bring you back to this place. And then there's this, this is this famous verse. I've, there's a jillion slides of it on it up on the internet. For I know the plans I have for you, declares Yahweh. Plans to prosper you and not to harm you. Plans to give you hope and a future. Then you will call on me and come and pray to me and I will listen to you. You will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart. I will be found by you, declares Yahweh, and will bring you back from cap captivity. 
I will gather you from all the nations and places where I have banished you and bring you back to the place from which I carried you into exile. So that verse 2911 is very well known and it's sometimes misused a bit. It's sometimes taken out, the context is, this is God speaking to the Babylonian exiles about bringing them back to the land of Palestine, bringing them back to, to the land of Israel, to Canaan, to Jerusalem. And um, it's, it's not a verse written to each one of us promising us that God has this laid out plan for our each piece of our life and, but it gets turned into that, and Christians can end up thinking what they ought to be doing with their time is, is trying to figure out what that plan is. And that ends up being really fruitless for a lot of people. So, so of course, God, it's, um, if you want to think about what God has awaiting you, better off using the verse from Romans, you know, all things work for good for those who love the Lord. I think that's, that's more helpful just because this one has been abused a lot by people who make promises they can't keep, won't keep. So, now, so that's one big, powerful promise to these people who are living in this time of darkness, that there is going to be an end to it, and it's going to be measurable in years. Span of 70, it's about 70 years from when, for example, Daniel went to Babylon and when King Cyrus of Persia allows them to begin returning home. That is about 70 years. It's about 50 years from the fall of Jerusalem to the time that, that Cyrus, king of Persia, allows them to begin returning home. Um, Linda asks, is there any significance to 70 years? You know, I see the number 70, Linda, and sure. You know, um, one it's several generations, two, it's seven times ten, seven is always significant, um, you encounter it several times in the Bible, you encounter 70 several times in the Bible because it's this number of, of completion and wholeness, so it's like if you think of it as when the 70 years are up you will have completed your jail sentence, which is kind of what we're coming to in Isaiah 40. But it's also just chronologically about the time from the beginning when exiles first were being forced out of Jerusalem to Babylon and when the first exiles began to return to Jerusalem. That's about 70 years because it's like um, 605 B.C. to maybe 540. So it's close enough for government work as they say. So, one more piece. I want to... Well, we'll wait on the next piece. So, are we now going back to Isaiah 40? Yes, my love. Okay. <laughs> Just making sure. We are going Isaiah back to Isaiah 40. And what chapter is it, Patty? 40. 40. Yeah, 40. Isaiah 40. 40 has significance, right? 40, yes. yes. It's a big place. This is, you know... While you're finding your way back, I'll tell you that when um, in Handel's Messiah, uh, 
this is the opening. This is the opening piece. You know, the, all of Handel's Messiah, the whole libretto, all of the lyrics, as it were, are taken from Scripture to tell the story of the Messiah. And it begins, the very first piece of music after the overture is Isaiah 40, where the tenor steps out and he sings directly to the crowd. I looked around on the internet today and there's so many wonderful recordings. I found one of a performance in Ghana. Um, it had this young man who stepped out in front of, in front of the crowd and sang this song about um, this, in, in essence, being released from jail, I guess I would put it. So, okay, so let's, so, so let's, let's um, read a little bit of ways in, and then we're going to connect to the New Testament. So here it is, Isaiah 40, verse 1. And just imagine, you're in the darkest time of your whole life. Some of you have, I know you've lived through very dark times. Pick the darkest time in your whole life. And that's God's word to these people. And they are living through the darkest time of their life. And God says to them, Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and proclaim to her that her hard service has been completed that her sin has been paid for, that she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. So what is that a word of? That is a word of your term of punishment is up, hard service. I think of breaking rocks in the pen. I don't think they'd do that if they ever did anymore um, it's just that in the darkness there is this promise from God that the time the time has has come you know for this to end comfort comfort my people says your God speak tenderly to Jerusalem proclaim to her that her hard service has been completed that her sin has been paid for and she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. It's over. And then there's the voice that begins to cry out. A voice of one calling in the wilderness, prepare the way for Yahweh. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be raised up, every mountain and hill made low. The rough ground shall become level, the rugged places the plain, and the glory of Yahweh will be revealed, and all people will see it together, for the mouth of Yahweh has spoken. In the ancient world, I don't know how much they actually did this, but there were ancient civilizations who would build what's called a king's highway. And a king's highway would be a highway 
that would be so perfectly laid out for the king that sure enough, they'd fill up the low places and knock down the high places. They made it all nice and flat and plain, nice and nice and flat and level for for the king to travel on because the king needs to travel on a really, really, really good road, I guess. Um, and that's what this is. Verses 3, 4, and 5, they're a call that, yes, Yahweh is showing up. Yahweh is showing up and, and make it ready. Make it ready. Make it ready. So the, the connection, the, new, the most immediate New Testament connection to this is, whoops, is from John the Baptist. I found this. This is El Greco's John the Baptizer, just found in his workshop. I don't know whether he had a more finished painting or not, or if he just did this. <laughs> I guess today would call it a headshot of 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 John the Baptizer. But go ahead and turn in um, in the Gospel of Luke to the third chapter. Ay, ay, ay. Okay. Oh, Scott. In Luke chapter three. Luke three. Okay. You want to look at good Luke chapter three verse one. So this is talking about John the Baptizer, you know, and so you get this in Matthew, you get this in Mark, but Luke has kind of the fullest expression of John the Baptizer using the passage from Isaiah and being the fulfillment of the passage from Isaiah. Him becoming the voice, right? Because the, the work that John the Baptizer is doing is in the wilderness. He goes, he leaves Jerusalem, he heads eastward, he goes to the Jordan River Valley, and that's in the wilderness. And that's where people are coming and streaming to to be plunged into the river by 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 John so that they can repent of their sins and embrace uh, re-embrace their god so look at chapter 3 um oh heck look at chapter 3 verse 1 what am i doing <laughs> We kind of, you know, Luke Luke places all of this in specific times and places. So, chapter 3, verse 1. In the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, when Pontius Pilate was governor of Judea, Herod, tetrarch of Galilee, his brother Philip, tetrarch of Etruria, and Trachonitis, and Licinius, tetrarch of Abilene, during the high priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas, wow, the word of God came to John, son of Zechariah, who you met, if you read Luke's gospel, you met in Luke 1, in the wilderness. And he went into all the country around the Jordan, the river, preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins, as it is written in the book of the words of Isaiah the prophet, a voice of one calling in the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord, Make straight paths for him. Every valley shall be filled in. Every mountain and hill made low. The crooked road shall become straight. The rough way smooth. For all people will see God's salvation. Wow. 
That's it. John, the baptizer, um, Luke, the gospel writer, they're all calling on Isaiah 40. Turn to turn to 1 Peter. We're going to bounce around our Bibles a little bit today, but that's okay. It's kind of what we're here for. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 23. And while you're finding it, 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 23. Um, Peter's talking to them about their rebirth in Christ. The, the eschatological reality of what has happened in Jesus, that they have been reborn already. And? <laughs> Not yet. Okay, verse 23 in 1 Peter, chapter 1. For you have been born again, Peter writes, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable, through the living and enduring word of God. Okay. For... All people, oops, for all people are like grass, and all their glory is like the flowers of the field. The grass withers, the flowers fall, but the word of the Lord endures forever, and this is the word that was preached to you. We're going to come upon these verses in just a little bit. I jumped the gun just a bit, but this is also from chapter 40. Um, and I just, just as an illustration of how much Isaiah 40 sort of permeates the view of um, Jesus and God's work in and through Jesus because though the people did return, <coughs> begin returning to Jerusalem, it was not really what they expected. You see, that's, that's the key, is to grasp that even when they begin returning to Jerusalem, it just doesn't look much like they thought it would look after hearing the promises. Because what happens is they just trade one pagan oppressor for another. They never have a rightful king from King of David. And the years pass, and the decades pass, and the centuries pass, and it almost feels like they're still in that jail. Um, and I think it's, you know, an analogy I've used before when teaching this is that it's, it begins to feel for them kind of like a house arrest. Yes, in Babylon, they were away at the pen, the penitentiary, with the yard and everything in it and the fencing and all the rest of it. Now, yeah, they're back home, but they got the, 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 the anklet on. And they're sort of like under house arrest. And, and it was constantly impressed upon them because every time they went to the temple, down at the end of the courtyard, what did they see? The Antonia Fortress, filled with Roman soldiers, Roman soldiers standing guard, looking over the edge of the parapets down into the temple, just this ever-present reminder that in the time of Jesus, they had the latest pagan oppressor. The latest pagan oppressor. And so then John the Baptist comes out with a new word, right? 
John the Baptist comes out with a new word. He is the voice calling in the wilderness. He is the fulfillment of Isaiah 40 because guess what? It's happening. Finally. After all this time, after all these centuries, five centuries since they began returning to Jerusalem, finally, finally, God's Messiah is arriving. God is arriving. Everything's happening. And that's the New Testament story built around Jesus, of, of course. So, um, it, it's why it's why Isaiah can end up being and ends up being understood and seen as um, Christian scripture. So much is so much of the Christian story that is told in um, in the scroll of Isaiah. Okay, so. Any questions or thoughts to this point? No, I Patty? just was thinking about that. That's what Jesus, Jesus also quotes Isaiah himself, right? To yeah, we're going to come to reveal himself. So La it, later, when he when he introduces himself in his hometown, yep, I, we're not there yet. That's later in Isaiah. I just wonder if that is if the book of Isaiah is is the book that is most often quoted by the disciples and others, including Jesus, in the New Testament. I've, I've come across people who said something like that. If you look at the quotation, the, the allusions to it. Another candidate's Deuteronomy also, but I think Isaiah, Patty, you're right, is the most, it's, it's the one that infuses, its perspective is the one that infuses the New Testament. Um, so, yeah. Because we're going to come come to the suffering servant passage before long. So I want to, um, before we go further in Isaiah, I want to show you a kind of an outline of this chapter 40 because it's, it's so pivotal. There's John again. <laughs> Isaiah 40. So the first couple of verses, if you look, want to look at your Bible, is the opening invitation. Then verses 3 to 5, which we just read and which Luke uses, that's sort of the announcement that God is back, Yahweh is back, get yourselves ready, we need a royal road suitable for a king, leveled off, made straight, no, no curves, no crookedness, no hills to climb, no, right? Yes. And then verses 6 to 11, it's going to be about Yahweh's return. Then, what we're going to come to are about a dozen verses about the incomparability of Yahweh. And you know why that is? Because, just think about it. You've been in exile all this time, and you read these words about, okay, this is it, God's coming. They might ring kind of hollow to you. They might ring kind of hollow to you. And so in chapter 20, in chapter 40, there are these verses that are meant to remind the Jews of who God really is. 
in God's power and God's sovereignty. And it, it, it's almost like a defense of God. Um, the book of Romans is, can be read as a defense of God's of God and God's righteousness because so many Jews were just so tired of waiting in Jesus' day that, that, and, and then when Jesus turned out to be, to all appearances, another failed would-be Messiah. So sorry. Another failed would-be Messiah, then it's natural that Paul would set out to defend God and say, no, Jesus is the revealing of God's righteousness. So it's, we're going to see here that it's kind of the same idea, the incomparability of Yahweh, and then God's going to respond to a, um, a complaint. So it's kind of a full package here in this chapter that sets the stage for what's coming after. So I just threw that in um, from Richard Hayes. Um, uh, well, there we go. Here we go. Back here. Okay. So. We're making sure everybody's awake today. <laughs> <laughs> I guess. It must be the hot weather. Or okay. Okay. So. Verse. Let's, let's go from five to six. So this is the end of this proclamation. And the glory of the Lord will be revealed, and all people will see it together, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. And then in verse 6, after a little short break, a voice says, cry out. And I said, this is the prophet now, what shall I cry? And now we come to the passage that Peter uses when he talks about how people are and contrasting with how everybody is to how the new Christians reborn in Christ should be. All people are like grass and all their faithfulness is like the flowers of the field. The grass withers, the flowers fall because the breath of the Lord, that would be the wind is what, that's a colorful way of speaking of the wind, blows on them. Surely the people are grass. That's the whole story of the Old Testament, is that the people wither and fall, and the wind blows, and there they go. They're like the, they're like the, um, what is it, the third little pig builds the house, and the wolf blows it all down. Is that how, is that how that goes, Patty? Something like that. Something like um, that. Yeah, I, I don't know. I haven't <laughs> dealt with that, that in a long from. time. Me neither. But the people are like grass. Verse 8, the grass withers, the flowers fall. That's how people are. It's the truth. We Don't even try to deny it. We still it. are like that. We still are like that. Yeah, right? Yeah, that, that's, that's one of the key insights of Scripture, you see, is that because what is wrong with this world is grounded in our rebellion against God, then so long as humans are rebelling against God, then... It's not going to change. The technology will change, and the means will change, and the language will change, and the culture will change. But fundamentally, we're like the grass and the flowers. Verse 8, the grass withers, the flowers fall. But the word of our God endures forever. 
the word of our God endures forever. Verse 9. You who bring good news to Zion, go up on a high mountain, on a high mountain, you who bring good news to Jerusalem, lift up your voice with a shout. Lift it up. Don't be afraid. Say to the towns of Judah, that's the little towns around Jerusalem, here is your God. See, the sovereign Lord, the sovereign Yahweh, comes with power, and he rules with a mighty arm. See, his reward is with him, and his recompense accompanies him. He tends his flock like a shepherd. He gathers the lambs in his arms and carries them close to his heart. He gently leads those that have young. So you get these two images side by side of, you know, the, um, look at verse 10, the powerful God with the mighty arm. That's kind of the image the world is going to respond to, right? That's, yeah, that's who God is. This big fist, this mighty arm, all the rest of it. Look at verse 11. Right against it, he leads his flock like a shepherd. He carries them close to his heart. He gently leads those that have young. He gathers the lambs in his arms. That is that ties into the whole biblical theme of of God being the good shepherd, of Jesus being the good shepherd, of Psalm 23, of the constantly reiterated theme that God cares and leads with caring and patience, a very surprising God in, 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 in an ancient world in which gods were the chief warriors. So, this powerful God who leads like a shepherd and carries the little lambs in his arms, he carries them close to his breast. I mean, it's very personal. It's very, I don't know, heartwarming. It's very compassionate that this God is now on the scene um, and, it's, and it's time. Right? Yes. And so then, verse 12, we begin this section about the incomparability of God. Okay? And it's a little bit like the end of the book of Job. At the end of the book of Job, after everybody's had lots and lots of fun trying to figure out, you know, why these terrible things have happened to Job, God arrives in a whirlwind and basically says, did you make the hippopotamus <laughs> or the tiger? So, it's kind of what happens here. Twelve. Who has measured the waters in the hollow of his hand, God's hand, or with the breadths of his hand marked off the heavens? Who has held the dust of the earth in a basket, or weighed the mountains on the scales and the hills in a balance? Who can fathom the spirit of Yahweh, or instruct Yahweh as Yahweh's counselor? Whom did Yahweh consult to enlighten him? Who taught him the right way? Who was it that taught him knowledge? or showed him the path of understanding. 
Nobody did. That's who God is. That's what we get from God, not what we give to God. Verse 15, Surely the nations are like a drop in a bucket. They are regarded as dust on the scales. He weighs the islands. He weighs, you know, as though they were fine dust. Lebanon is not sufficient for altar fires, nor its animals enough for burnt offerings. Before God, all the nations are as nothing. They are regarded by him as worthless and less than nothing, which is a word about how God views so much of what seems to matter to us most. Right? right? We like to deal in real politic. And we think the most important things that are going on in the world today are driven by the nations and the nation states and the presidents and their armies and all that kind of stuff. And you read the scriptures and God is just sweeping all that stuff aside. And, and don't think that it's because you know, their world was so, they didn't really have to deal with the things we deal with today. They live in a world, they lived in a world in which great empires came and went. The great Assyrian empire supplanted by the Babylonians, the Babylonians supplanted by the Persians, and on and on and on. So they knew all about real politic. Part of the problem that the, um, Israelite kings ran into is that they when they often wanted to play the real practical political kind of king, you know, could figure out the best treaty and marry the best wife to bring in so and so as the right kind of ally, even while they're ignoring God. And in scripture all that leads to their ruination. You know, we we Christians have to see the world differently. We are Jesus' people before all else. We are Jesus' people before all else. Empires come and go. I have a book on my shelf that was popular a while, while back called The Rise and Fall of Great Nations. I'm looking at the my eighth volume, Edward Gibbons, The Rise and Fall of the Roman Empire. Great empires come and go. The British Empire came and is a shadow of itself. It's just it's just the way it is. And even for Americans, you know, you, you ask yourself, well, what are my kids or grandkids or great-grandkids or great-great-grandkids or great-great-great-great-great-grandkids? What's going to be for them? Well, I don't know. I don't know. All I do know is that empires come and go. For lots of reasons. Lots of reasons. Usually tied to really <laughs> what? Of course, the bad choices, the bad choices um, that that not only people can fall into, but societies and cultures and nations can fall into. What endures? Look, what do we have a verse like that here? Sure, look up again at verse verse eight. The grass withers, the flowers fall, but the word of our God endures forever. And the word of our God will be enduring for our great-great-great-great-great-great-great-great-grandchildren. They can choose to ignore it. 
But unless Jesus returns first, it'll still be the rock upon which they can build a life. So... Verse 18, still talking about the incomparable God. With whom then will you compare God? To what image will you liken him? As for an idol, a metal worker casts it, a goldsmith overlays it with gold, fashions silver chains for it. A person too poor to present such a nice offering selects wood that won't rot. They look for a skilled worker. They build a little idol, you know, they're going to worship or something. What a joke. What a joke. Do you not know? Have you not heard? Has it not been told you from the beginning? Have you not understood since the earth was founded? God sits enthroned above the circle of the earth. And its people are like grasshoppers. He stretches out the heavens like a canopy and spreads them out like a tent to live in. He brings princes to nothing, reduces the rulers of this world to nothing, Every powerful ruler in the world today is going to die. They may not think so. They may engage in all kinds of strange things to prevent it. But sure, he reduces the rulers of this world to nothing. No sooner are they planted, no sooner are they sown, no sooner do they take root in the ground than he blows on them and they wither, and a whirlwind sweeps them away like chaff. What are, I mean, our lifespans are so short. It's, you know, it's just, these verses are a reminder that God is God and we are not. You know, and of course, I'm reading this now and I can't help but think of uh, Vladimir Putin. Exactly. The man, the piece of person. And the whole world is seeing that that Russia was an empty shell. An empty shell. An empty shell with nukes, yes. But an empty shell. Nobody thought that... Everybody thought that his army would roll over Ukraine in a matter of days. An empty shell. Read some of the reports of young Russian soldiers who have deserted and gone home and are putting things up on the internet. An empty shell. It's being swept away. And he knows it. That's the thing. He's, he, what's the old saying? He may be crazy, but he's not insane. Well, the fact <laughs> that he does know it is the scary part. <laughs> yeah, it is. Yeah. So, verse 25. To whom will you compare me? Who is my equal, says the Holy One? And what is the answer? No one. No one. Who will you compare God to? Mm-hmm. No one. There's no one to compare God to. God has no equal. God is God isn't one. Yes, where are you going to go? Where are you going to look? Where are you going to come up? No, 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 no. Verse twenty six. Lift up your eyes and look to the heavens. Who created all these? He brings out the starry host one by one and calls forth each of them by name because of his great power and mighty strength. Not one of them is missing. Everything is where it should be. It's all God's stuff. All that stuff you see in the Hubble telescope, it's all God's. He created it all. Who's going to, who are you going to find it compared to him? You know, it's a, this is a word that 
a lot of people in our time need. Because they think we humans and our intellect are the center of all things. And oh my, my, my. Nope. So with that, we move to the last section of chapter 40. Why do you complain, Jacob? Jacob, standing for Israel, right? I mean, the, the, the writer will use different names for the same thing, like Zion and Jerusalem, Jacob, Israel, because it's, it's more interesting to write that way. I remember when I wrote my dissertation for my PhD, and they wanted me to use, in every occasion, the same word for the same thing, even though there were good synonyms. I said, well, that's boring. And they go, yeah, but we want you to do that because that's like more scientific or something. I'm going, but it's boring. <laughs> so they won. Okay, why do you complain, Jacob? Why do you say Israel... Quote, my way is hidden from Yahweh. My cause is disregarded by my God. Because you see, that's their complaint. Their complaint is that God has ignored them. Even though they know they're in jail for what they did, it's, it, it, it's so easy to forget that, right? I feel abandoned. God's abandoned me. Yeah, it's my fault that I'm here, but woe is me, poor me, God abandoned me. Oh. You like my sound effects, Patty? Whoa. <laughs> <laughs> oh. Oh. And so God says in verse 28, Do you not know? Have you not heard? Yahweh is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. He will not grow tired. He will not grow weary. His understanding no one can fathom. He gives strength to the weary increases the power of the weak. Even kids, even youths, <laughs> grow tired and weary, and young men stumble and fall. But those who hope in Yahweh will renew their strength. Wow, another very famous. 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 They will soar on wings like eagles. Wow. That's been cross-stitched more times about anything else. They will soar on wings like eagles. They will run and not grow weary. They will walk and not be faint, which means to be tired. So, in chapter 40, what do we have? We have the announcement that even in this darkest of dark times, God is arriving. God is arriving. And the jail term has been served. And they are going to begin to return home. And if you don't believe it, embrace the incomparable God who created the heavens and the, and the earth. Right? And if you feel if you feel like God has abandoned you, just remember, right? That 
For those who hope in the Lord, their strength will be renewed because God hasn't abandoned you. That's, in, I, you know, I, I run into people, of course we do, at St. Andrew, who, are, who go through terrible things, terrible illnesses that they're fighting and they get bad diagnoses and, and the families do and it's a difficult thing but you, you can't ever think that God has abandoned you. You just can't. It's wrong. I mean, it's incorrect. I can't, it's not wrong to feel that way. I get why people would feel that way. But you have to remind yourself, your family and friends have to remind you that no, no, no. Yes. Yes, you're ill. Yes, you may die. But even that death is not your end. God is never, ever, ever going to abandon you. And um, I think it's, it's why chapter 40 is just so pivotal because if you look at it, to go back to this slide, it, I mean, it covers the full, the, this full story, from the invitation to Yahweh's return to the incomparability of God that yes, he can really do this. And then the complaint, the understandable complaint. You know? The understandable complaint. What's sometimes where I think we might make the mistake of thinking that if we complain or we or we think that God's abandoned us, that that is somehow some terrible, terrible sin we've committed. I don't think so. The, the sin would be if we walked away from God at that point. All God wants us to do is turn back to God, to turn back to God, to remember that the Word of God endures forever and that... Um, those who hope in the Lord will renew their strength. They will soar on wings like eagles. And, and to embrace the full biblical teaching about who we are and, and how much God loves us and the nature of our existence. The nature of our existence. And... and a lot of that, a lot of that is, is at odds with what the world wants to tell people. <laughs> but the world's wrong about so much of it. That's the thing, right? So anyway, that's chap the famous, famous chapter 40 in Isaiah. And when we come next week, we're, we're going to pick up in Isaiah 41, naturally. And we're going to have a trial. Yeah, we're going to have a trial. In a way, God's going to be on trial. <laughs> which is sometimes what we like to do to God is put God on trial. But God is, I think, going to be the one on trial. He's also going to be the prosecutor and the judge and the jury. Um, but it's it's cast in kind of a kind of a trial. What can I put it? A trial motif. So anyway, that's it. So any final questions or things anybody has before Patty comes around and? Finishes no. us up today. I just had a nice little compliment that it was a wonderful class today. And I agree. Well, good. That is, um, wow, there is just so many, as you like to call them, you know, cross-stitch things. But I think when you say that sometimes, I think some people find that offensive, Scott, uh -oh. because I do, and I'm your wife. <laughs> but, you know, I'm allowed to, to say that. Um, because I don't mean it to be offensive. I, know, I, know I just that. mean it to be how popular that verse they're, is. They're very popular, yes.
but to so many people, they are verses that, um, and I have done this in my own life, certain ones that I have had to say over and over to myself at some of the really hard times because, yeah, I have a wonderful, wonderful life, but I have had really hard times too. So how too. about if I never say that again? It's okay. I'm no, just saying. I'm, how I'm about just if saying, I say? I just, I just don't want anyone else to feel like. How about if wow. I say it's an often memorized verse? Yes. 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 That will work just the sometimes, same. Sometimes, when you're in the moment of something just really crushing, you, you, you almost you like need to have something right then and there in that moment. That's why memorizing some scripture yes. is helpful because just, you can call on it. Yes. You know, I have a few verses. I'm not a lot. I don't memorize a lot. Of stuff I don't know if I could anymore but I have a few that I constantly yes. are my ground and are my ground right, right right and I know that a lot of other people do too so um, I think because some of them just have so much um, I don't know I don't know why but they just have so much meaning to so many people so that's that's kind of I don't know well, I just yeah. hope people appreciate Isaiah 40 and how pivotal it is in the book of Isaiah and in the whole, in the whole Bible and in the story of Jesus and in God's work and all of that. So, Yes. Well, I... Yeah. It's over I, to you, baby. I, I agree. Okay, so um, thanks everybody for being with us today. Um, this is really a, a great book. And thank you, Rich Morgan. I know you're out there, but this is for you, bud. And I'm so <laughs> grateful because the rest of us get to, uh, you know, get to experience it, it all. And I know this was a big undertaking. And I promise you, Scott spends a lot of time in this book getting prepared for this class. So um, you probably can tell. So um, anyway, let's, let's go to God in prayer. Let's do okay. it. Okay. Heavenly Father, we thank you today. We thank you for this hot, windy day that we're having in May. We thank you, God, for this um, technology that we're able to do this online. And we have been now for well over two years. And we're, we're very grateful, Lord, for that. Just very, very grateful. We pray, Lord, that you would watch over this group and hold us, God, continue to hold us close together. We pray, God, not only for ourselves, but we do ask you, God, for prayers for our family and our friends. We pray, God, for your wisdom and your discernment in our lives every day to help us make the choices, God, that you would have us make. And my prayer, Lord, is always that that would just become an easier and easier decision to do all the time because we know your will. I pray today, Lord, I saw that our friend Sharon her is online with us today and we're we're still praying Sharon every day for you and we're just praying to the Lord right now that he would give you peace and comfort as you wait still a little more than a week for your surgery and we just pray God that they're able to do this surgery on Sharon remove her tumor and just come back with fantastic clear results from this and Lord, I do have another friend. This is a female friend who is going through a very, very tough time with cancer right now. And she needs a very exper experimental drug to be approved for her cancer. It is truly the only thing that doctors have told her right now they can treat her with. And Lord, we don't know how that could be made possible, but we know in the past you have allowed things like this to work together. And 
this is truly a woman who loves you, Lord, and I know you know that. So, Lord, we lift up all these prayers today. We pray them all in the great and glorious name of your risen Son, Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. Okay, everybody. Bye, friends. Have a good afternoon. Adios. Don't get blown away out there. If you go outside, it feels like someone has turned on the largest hair dryer on you on full hot. Oh, yeah. It does. It's only May. I know. Anyway. crazy. Okay. Bye, everybody. Bye, everybody. Hope, hope to see you tomorrow, 12 uh, o'clock, in person or online, in Piro Hall. Bye. Bye. This is my job. That's I your mean, job, right? buddy. Yeah, you do a, it's my job. And you do a wonderful job. <laughs> See y'all. Bye-bye.